I'm excited to have on the show today Dr. Marlon De La Torre. He's a good friend and a neighbor. <laughs> so welcome, Marlon. Thank you, Jerry, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just going to read a short bio of um, your your many accomplishments here, and then we're just going to get into our topic for the yeah, day, that'll work. That'll which work. is spiritual warfare. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about that with you, Marlon. Sounds scary, too, at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So hopefully we'll demystify some of the stuff that there we go. is That's awesome. and is not. Marlin currently serves as the president and executive director of the Catholic Brain Catechetical Institute. This is a really neat uh, faith formation platform that you can find at catholicbrain.com. And his uh, professional catechetical background is very extensive, spans over 24 years, and he served in many different catechetical roles in many different dioceses. His published works include the book Screwtape Teaches the Faith and Man Up, Becoming the New Catholic Renaissance Man. He's been a contributing writer at many different websites and publications, including CatholicLane.com, CatholicExchange.com, CatholicMom.com, The North Texas Catholic, Catholic News Services, and he's a regular feature at newadvent.org. He also blogs professionally at knowingisdoing.org. Some of Marlin's television and radio credits include EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa and also EWTN Spanish, Nuestro, Nuestra Fe en Vivo. He's also been on many different radio shows, including Sunrise Morning Show, Al Cresta Live, Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio, Catholic Answers Live, and Relevant Radio. Marlon and his wife Amy have been married for almost 24 years, and they have been blessed with 13 wonderful children, four of which are still living, and nine beautiful souls in heaven. So that's probably enough for now, Marlon. Oh, yeah. I don't want to flatter you too much there. <laughs> no, but, no, uh, no. It's a, God, God make the, makes those things that I, so <laughs> I give all the glory and praise to him. So let's get into yeah, what spiritual warfare is. So okay. let's set up the situation. Okay. I've got a quote from G.K. Chesterton here. Right. What's wrong with the world today? Hmm. This was a question posed in the Times uh, many years ago. And hmm. G.K. Chesterton said one very small sentence. Dear hmm. sir, I am. So we hear from Peter that... We are to be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So I want to talk about the situation we're in now. Mm -hmm. Our reality is that uh, many people, uh, our society nowadays, really in a lot of ways, has lost a sense of anything that we can't see or sense yeah. or touch or smell or hear. Mm -hmm. um, we've lost a sense of anything beyond sense. Mm -hmm. And in that way, we've lost a sense of uh, good and bad, mm -hmm. and if the devil truly is even existent mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit. Is the devil real? Well, the devil, re the devil is real because, one, Scripture says so. So if you want to take it from one angle, we understand divine revelation to be the Word of God revealed to us, and that that Word took on a visible reality in Jesus Christ. So we know that we have a, a written record that there was somebody called the devil, that his uh, identification is a spirit of light, and that he chose to blur that light. He chose to dim that light in terms of his relationship with God. 
because he desired to be like God. Now, from that perspective, if somebody who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Scripture, or doesn't believe in anything revealed, divinely or inspired, all right, then how can we prove that the devil exists? Um, there is a basic point to look at every human being. Everybody is inclined to do something good. Everybody is inclined to do something bad. All right. And so do we attribute our bad things to the devil, or do we attribute it to something that urges us to do something bad? And that's a distinction of explaining to anyone that there is a possibility that the devil exists. Now, obviously, you and I being faithful Catholics, we will say, yes, of course the devil exists. However, how do you demonstrate it? How do you prove that? Well, unless a human being can either levitate, walk through a wall, or go one day without cussing out somebody, <laughs> all right, then we know that there's evil, and that evil has an origin. Now, did God create that evil? Not at all. All right, God allows evil to exist, but that evil is attributed to somebody who entices us to do anything that's contrary to God's love. So that means this, Jared. In other words, I love myself more than you. So if you happen to basically walk into a wall, bang your head, and you have a concussion, by definition, all right, and by the devil's encouragement, I would say, well, sucks to be you. That, that's your problem, not mine. I'm not going to help you. So is that a definition of an immoral act? Yes, it's a definition of, of your unwillingness to help a fellow brother in Christ. My unwillingness. It's the unwillingness to see somebody as a child of God. So if all those things come into play, then we could safely say that there is an evil that exists, that evil is attributed by a source or an entity that encourages us to act contrary to God. So with that said, yes, he does. The devil does exist. So why have we lost that? Uh, you taught, you touched on it a little bit. Yeah. As a society, <clears throat> mm -hmm. why have why have so many people, or as a society as a whole, why have we lost that that reality that we can kind of know from reason yeah. and from faith? No one likes to be told what to do. All right. So let, let me put this in context. So if you if anybody would read Genesis or Exodus, for example, if you read the Old Testament, there are two things. The chosen race, the chosen people of God, the Israelites, do all the time. Even though they were, they, they firsthand saw the power of God. They grumbled and they murmured. All right. These were two things that they always did. Now, where does that grumbling come from? It comes from the inclination to love self over God. Right. Where does the murmuring come from? It comes from the, the thought that there must be something better than God. And so this has been with us since the very beginning. Now, what it's done now in current society, it's more sophisticated. The reason is my will, my reason, happens to be more sound, more reasonable than yours. Now, that's a definition of the woke culture or the cancel culture, meaning that my opinion actually is my dogma. And so yours can't be that right because I believe mine is to be more perfect or more pure than yours. Right. So... That's one of the roots of why we distance ourselves from accepting the reality that there is a good, that God exists, and that the devil really is nothing other than a make-believe superstition that really doesn't affect who we are. So in other words, <clears throat> I can justify my bad behavior because it's based on my opinion how I view the world. And so if that's the case, then you completely disassociate anything that resembles or good or evil. And, or in other words, you probably heard this, somebody will tell you, there is no moral objective. Right, exactly. All right, and so if there isn't, that means I develop my own uh, moral opinion. 
whatever that may be. So as husbands, I had a, um, I had a situation where somebody told me a long time ago, working with a marriage prep situation, and the husband said, I have no problems going to a uh, nudist bar. And he, and, and, and he, he, was a, he was married. He had two kids. His wife knew he went to one of those, those, those crazy bars. And I asked him, do you not see anything wrong with that? No, she encourages me to do it. When, when I can't get what I want at home, she says, well, just go get your fill, then come back to me. Hmm. It's like, do you understand the ramifications that you're not only objectifying a woman, you're distressing the relationship with your wife by saying that you do not objectively give me anything. I desire more than what you're willing to give me. It also tells me, and I told him this, that you have no desire to serve her. You're so preoccupied with your own selfish desire, your your fetish, whatever that may be, sexual, right. that you're just you're just completely disassociating her, and, and that's part of what's happened, Jared. To answer your question, to, and I want to give that that tangible example, because it's about serving the self. It's like the self servile at any restaurant or what have you. Give me mine. I pay for it. Give me mine. But there are ramifications to that action. And what if somebody is, is hungry and comes into that restaurant and they have no means of paying? But you've just paid. Would you offer your plate of food to that poor person? Uh, based on the argument that I just gave, no. Why would I? It's mine. Right. So, I mean, to answer that question, th- that's been the evolution. And so w- whatever is beneficial to me, that centrist attitude, then you see this is a dissociation with God. The devil is really no one. And it's kind of ironic where they disassociate the devil as being nothing, but they recognize God, but they have to reject him. So you're looking at a spiritual battle right now. That's essentially what happens when you look at God. It's like, oh, uh, God, I don't believe in God. The devil, oh, he's made up. But yet to not believe in God means that you assent to the fact that he could exist. Right. So right. there you go. Uh, that's great. Um I just read Father Paul Pearson's book, uh, mm. Spiritual Direction yeah. from Dante, yeah. Avoiding the Inferno. Inferno. Yeah, it's great. And along with that, um, read the, his Divine Comedy along the way, you know, the Inferno. So I just I really like his first line in the in in, in the poem. It's midway in the journey of our life. I came to myself in a dark wood, for the straight way was lost. Mm. It just seems. That's often the case with with us. You know, how do we even know that we've started to drift or become lost or you know, and, and then how do we awaken to that as well? Mm-hmm. To realize I don't know where I am or I've made of my life whatever I want, like you're saying, yeah. you know, the, the the humanism, the relativism of all those isms of Whatever I want my life to be, I can make that, and so can you. Yeah. And there is no law of what is good and, and, and what is bad. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to talk about the relative powers of God versus the devil in our okay. lives. So okay. let's, let's, for the argument's sake, say that we believe that there is God now. Okay. Let's go there. Yeah. And there is a devil. Mm-hmm. Is the devil... And equal with God is he is he fighting so hard against God that he he could potentially win okay. within us and within our society. So God is the Almighty Creator, mm-hmm. and the devil we know is a creature of God. So sure. 
Let's let's talk about that a little bit. The relative powers of God versus okay. the devil. Great question. Um, let's define the terms then. All right. So the devil is a pure spirit, meaning he's not bound by time or space at all. He was created by God as a pure angel. So he has angelic powers. He is an angel by definition. And that's something that people tend to forget, that the devil is a pure spirit. He is an angel. And meaning that he was part of the angelic choir of angels created by God to serve him and to be at his disposal in so many ways uh, through the propagation of, of God's love to creation. And, he, and this is what he receives. So uh, the devil is the recipient of his gifts by God. He's not the originator of his own gifts or talents. Now, when the devil, i.e. Lucifer, um, uh, the other names that we call him, Beelzebub, whatever the case may be, when he chose to reject the very gift that was given to him by God and chose to be like God, obviously, uh, hell was created. That was a place that the devil himself initiated. And because God is infinite, he obviously obliged. He, he said, okay, this is what you want. This is what you get. You've created this. And you shall never see, nor understand, nor be uh, cognizant again of my preternatural gift. You're aware of it because you saw it, but you rejected it. Meaning that in preternatural gift, what I mean by that is, uh, for our audience, is the ability to be in the presence of God, literally. See Him face to face. Be in His presence uh, in a way that is so beautiful that nothing else resounds other than the love between God and His children. Okay, So... Put that in context, the devil rejected that. All right. So God's infinite power is far superior and greater because he is I am, as he describes himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 2. So we see this interplay between uh, God the Father all right, and the devil being a, a created being from God. So, so those are the two distinctions. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. There is no uncaused cause because God is cause, meaning that God has, uh, you don't attribute anything else other than who God is. And that's the beauty of God. And we see that through our actions, through you and I being able to rationalize intellectually, willfully discuss and banter back and forth uh, on this subject and this topic, uh, to be able to be or to articulate God, because we're talking about God the Father. And, and that's living proof that there is substance to a living God who exists and is real. So that gives him more authority. The devil cannot in any way uh, literally, and this is clear to understand for our audiences, he cannot hurt God's children. He does not have that, the authority or that power from this understanding. He didn't, he didn't create them. So now what can he do? He cannot read the mind of a human being either unless we commit something that opens the door that's contrary to God's love. So meaning that every time we engage in a willful sin, all right, a, a sin of commission by definition, which means that we actively know that this is something we shouldn't do, we open the opportunity for the devil to come in and work with that sin. So he massages that sin. He makes it uh, more enjoyable. He gives it reason, all right, and he puts that reason into our mindset to exercise it more. And the more he does that, the more we either choose to accept it or reject it depending on our position with God and our understanding of our love for him and his love for us. So this is how the devil works. He can't never force a human being to do anything. He does not have that authority or that power. But can he try to urge you to do something? Absolutely, but only if you engage in that sin 
and that behavior that allows him to encourage you to do it. Right, an act of your will. Like Absolutely. So, so those are the distinctions. Uh, people think that the devil has all this power. No, or they misconceive the notion of um, the 1973 famous uh, movie on the exorcist based on the book. Okay. Exorcism is only a physical manifestation of the devil controlling a body but not the soul. Why can't the devil control the soul? Because he didn't create it. He, he does not have domain under any circumstance over any human being. This is why when somebody has gone through a, a genuine full-blown possession, all right, and just goes through exorcism, they can't recall what happened. Because they, they literally were taken over only from a physical sense. Right. Meaning that that person, whatever came out of his or her mouth, whatever they did, they're not culpable for those actions. So as another demonstrative to, to show that the devil still has no authority, has no power. Because if he did, then exorcism would be a mute point. Right. So, so those are some of the it distinctions. It makes sense logically too, yeah. It does. It's logically, when you look at it that way, um, th there are basic premises here to God who is God and the devil who is limited. But he's still a pure spirit. He is, he is brighter than the most learned theologian, master catechist on the planet. And so that's why we have specific stories of certain saints being able to outwit the devil and beat him at his own game. Uh, like St. John Bosco, like St. John Marie Vianney, like St. Therese of Lisieux, for example, uh, and, and most recently, infamously, St. Padre Pio, back in the 1940s and 50s. So, so we see uh, the charisms of these particular saints, for, uh, for example, that were able to outwit him because they were given the grace by God to do so. Right. Well, that's a good uh, segue into just how Satan does tempt us. Let's get into that a little bit more. So I want to go to C.S. Lewis and his screw tape letters. Sure. So he's the, yeah. the, the great uh, Christian writer and apologist. So he explains some of the ways that Satan tempts us. Yeah. And uh, here's, here's, here's some of that. So in the, in the, for the audience that, if you don't know, in these letters, the, uh, the chief demon is screw tape, and he's instructing the young apprentice demon Wormwood. So the formulations here are kind of backwards, right? Uh, but it's part of the, the, uh, the genius of, of uh, C.S. Lewis's work here because we get kind of an insight into how you know, the, the demons will plot our demise. He talks about within that how Satan tempts us. Um, one of them is just in our prayer life. And, and possibly maybe the biggest one. So uh, he talks about the demonic forces will try to convince us to estimate the value of prayer by our success in producing whatever desired feeling we have or, or, or want. Uh, so, but we know that feelings are usually temporary and fleeting and, uh, you know, dependent on certain criteria, such as whether, you know, how we're feeling, whether we're well-rested or not. Uh, and so forth in any given moment. So it's obviously not a good gauge for where we are in our spiritual life, with in our prayer life, um, if we just go on based on based on how we feel about our prayers. Mm -hmm. So then he talks about attacking anxiety. There's nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. Mm -hmm. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Mm -hmm. Our business, this is screw tape talking to Wormwood, our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. And then he talks about sloth. They will immobilize us in our feelings about a situation. So he, he, 
again, this is Screwtape talking to his apprentice, Wormwood. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able to ever to act. That's man, that's us. And, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Mm-hmm. And then anxiety about the future. Uh, this is a really uh, prevalent attack of the devil. Uh, having us think about the future rather than where we are in the present moment. So he says, It is far better to make them live in the future. It is unknown to them, so that making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. It's the most completely temporal part of time, for the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. So going from there, I'm I'm just reading some of these, and then we can talk about all of them. Please, please. The presence of Christ. Mm -hmm. Another one that the devil uses in attack is they will make Jesus seem like he's far away. Remember in this writing, the enemy is, again, screw tape. Uh, the enemy of screw tape, sorry, is, is our Lord, mm-hmm. Jesus. So he says, the presence, For the presence of the enemy, otherwise experienced by men in prayer and sacrament, we substitute a merely probable, remote, shadowy, and uncouth figure, one who spoke a strange language and died a long time ago. Such an object cannot, in fact, be worshipped. Mm-hmm. Next one talks about, and this is particularly relevant, I would say, in our times, social justice. Hmm. Uh, The devil's tactic here is to have us worry or think about or pour our energies into our causes, our pet causes, you might say, first, rather than to seek Christ first. Mm -hmm. So we're a church of Christ, not a church of causes Mm -hmm. and social justice first and foremost. So they say... The thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands. And then, and here the enemy is is Christ, and then work him onto the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. For the enemy will not be used as a convenience. Maybe we'll just talk about any of those, and in particular the last one is being particularly relevant in our society today. No, absolutely. I think one one thing to really look on the whole issue of social justice or and the, the virtue of being just means that you recognize the dignity of the human person. The sociological aspect is that you see in reality um, how man communicates in life. So when you break those two terms down, it's very apropos to look at it from, from the flip side. When you take justice first, and then you expand and explain what it means to respect the dignity of the human person, and then how is that uh, applied socially, meaning amongst the community? Because we are, we are born and bred to be in community. That's by nature. No human being, uh, even, even if you look at a hermit, all right, who is in isolation, all right, in the deserts of Egypt, still has communion with God. All right? right? He may be by himself. It doesn't mean he is literally by himself. Right. He has, he's physically alone, but he's he physically has the presence alone. of the supernatural. He, he has special supernatural. He has the presence of his guardian angel. He has the presence of the choirs of saints, the communion of saints, those who will minister to him on behalf of God. And so we tend to forget that, is that all of us are being nurtured and ministered on a daily basis by uh, these beautiful images, uh, these realities of our guardian angel and the communion of saints. Now, how does that apply with social justice? Uh, the, the act of being just means that you seek the well-being of another person. It means that if somebody is in need, you act. 
But you add with the understanding that you and him, you and her, are children of God. We are called to help one another. That's why when you look at, and I'll hark back to Moses. Moses had somebody who helped him. Okay, it was Aaron. All right. And then from there you had Joshua. All right. So they all helped each other. They were in communion with each other. And that's a biblical example of looking at how justice and the social aspect or the social justice element comes into play. We're bound to help one another. That, that is the root of it. Now, when you look at that, what is the driving force behind it? It's the law. It's the Ten Commandments, the Shema, the, 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 the premise of how we are to view God and view our neighbor. So, so the reality of being socially just, when you take on the issue of, say, poverty, you take on the issue of immigration, you take on the issue of racism, for example, all right, if you take Christ out of those three elements and you misinterpret social justice, then it's not an act for the, towards the good. All right? it, be, it becomes, unfortunately, a, a notion of a self-leaning, self-serving ideology. That's not the intention of God. God is not an ideologue. God is God. And, and Christ is not an ideologue. Some people would argue Christ was a pacifist. Christ is not defined as a pacifist because that, that's one of the arguments for social justice, that he was a, he was a pacifist. Right. And when, somebody asked me that once, said, well, Christ is a pacifist. It's like, I don't recall that nomenclature as being one of the identities of Jesus Christ crucified, who is the Son of God, Redeemer, who is our Savior King, who is the, the, the Master Teacher. And I said, if, if you mean by pacifist, that his crucifixion was unnecessary, then maybe you have a point. But his crucifixion was far from being pacifist. It was a violent, bloody event that occurred. And he knew it was going to occur. He knew what was going to happen. So the fact that he, that he embraced that humbly should not be misconstrued as being a pacifist. Or that you labeled Christ as, as a social justice warrior because he... Um, turned the tables uh, in the synagogue or because he fed 5,000 people. He did that to demonstrate that he is God. Not that he was socially just. Mm, that's great points. I really like that. So, so that, that, that when you look at the, the premise of social justice, you have to start with the law and not be afraid of it because the law is revealed by Christ in the New Testament to be our beatitude responsibility. Our responsibility to clothe the naked, feed the hungry, the corporal spiritual works of mercy, coupled with the beatitudes. A blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, that means literally that, regardless of quote unquote, not the literal understanding per se, all right, even though we, we interpret scripture literally, figuratively, spiritually, morally, anagogically, um, we understand that poor in spirit means those who do not know God, first and foremost. That is, uh, that is primacy. It, it, is, it is better to feed somebody, to feed their soul, before their body. The body comes secondary. That's the premise of social justice, is that the soul must be fed in order to act appropriately before the eyes of God. Then what we do in feeding the poor, then what we do in clothing the naked makes more sense because it also calls us to be morally just. And that's really the premise of any sound social justice doctrine. That is the, the epitome of what Christ asked of us. Oh, that's so good. And again, a great... I think that's a great segue into yeah. our next yeah. aspect here, which is the actual spiritual warfare that we, yeah. can, that we yeah. can perform here. Yeah. And so 
you know, the question is, well, what does that mean? What is mm-hmm. spiritual warfare? Sure. And so that's my first question. My next question that goes along with that would be, does it, as you just said, let's get into it a little more though. Yeah. Does it primarily deal with fighting those internal mm-hmm. t- in, uh, mm-hmm. tendencies or is it external mm-hmm. evils that we're trying to have this spiritual sure. warfare against? So what sure. is it? And then what is it primarily, internal, external combination of both? Okay, so spiritual warfare, by definition, is is the instance of, of good versus evil. But in, in another way, you have to look at it from the perspective as the devil's hatred towards God's children. Okay, so spiritual warfare began with the fall. Spiritual warfare began with the original sin. Is the moment that Adam Eve chose to be like God, just, just like the devil did, then you introduce the capacity to reject God, where there was no capacity before. Hmm. All right. So Adam and Eve had no capacity to reject God. They were introduced to that possibility by the devil himself. So that is the, the origin of our malay of, of dealing with spiritual warfare. Now, the internal or external disposition of spiritual warfare means this. One, the devil cannot engage you to go into spiritual battle. He can entice you just like he did Adam and Eve. You can freely choose based on your own free will to engage that or not, meaning that every spiritual battle or spiritual warfare means the opportunity for you to either accept God or reject Him. It's whether you choose to engage in behavior that is contrary to the law or not. And so that that is something that we face every day. Now, part of that equation with spiritual warfare, Jared, is the fact that we have this, this unfortunate reality called concupiscence. What is concupiscence? It's the inclination or the thought to commit a sin. Okay. So now, we were given this by our parents, Adam and Eve. And, and this is still with us to this very day. Does that mean that we are doomed? Not at all. Now, does the devil want you to think that you're doomed? Yes, that's part of the spiritual battle. He wants to convince you that there's no hope for you. So these alternatives will somehow soothe the pain of thinking that God doesn't love mm. you or that you can't love God because this or alternative... Or a spiritual band-aid or maybe a Tylenol. Absolutely. A cure of your... Or, or, or a nice uh, bottle of scotch, right. right, to just numb the pain. Because that's what the devil does in spiritual warfare. He numbs your reality. That's where anxiety comes in. So anxiety is really pre- uh, predicated on having a, a, a false reality or, or not seeing things as they truly are. So you start conjuring up things in your mind. Well, that's what the devil entices you to do. It's it's a whirlwind of, of scenarios or what ifs. You become your own conspiracy theorist yourself. Well, what if I do this? What if I do that? Well, if I don't do this, if I don't do that? Oh, oh shucks. Like, well, what am I doing now? And then anxiety breeds. And that's exactly what the devil tries to do. So spiritual warfare is a distraction. Spiritual warfare is an attempt by the devil to get you to walk away and not believe in Jesus Christ crucified. Um, and we see this in Scripture. We see this in Matthew's God, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke in particular. Every time that Christ heals or removes or banishes or says, in his name, be gone, okay? It's basically removing that external, okay, first, all right, but making sure the internal stays intact because every demon ascents to Christ in this way. Oh, Son of God, do not harm us. Mm-hmm. They recognize they who he him. is. They know him. Why is that? Because they know he is God. They know that he has dominion and sovereignty over them and that he can do. He can destroy them if he wanted to, and he doesn't. 
So they know that, so they beg him, send us somewhere else. Send us to the swine. Just give us somebody that we can have a host to. That's spiritual warfare. So when you're dealing with that, you as a Catholic, me as a Catholic, anybody listening, all right, prayer, authentic prayer that's Christocentric, that's Trinitarian, based on your baptism, the desire for confession, the desire to recognize, not by my will, Lord, but by yours, or it's no longer I, but you who work through me, my Lord, that type of understanding. So confession allows that to basically think of Christ before yourself and think of others. Then for that, that, that intimate union with Jesus Christ in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, where you receive him, where you see a foretaste of heaven in the Mass, where you see the beautiful uh, relationship between body and soul, i.e. Christ in the Holy Eucharist, and we get to participate in that, is another renunciation or part of the gift of spiritual battle or spiritual warfare. The Mass gives you that equipment to withstand those near occasions of sin, those temptations that the devil may throw at you. So spiritual warfare is external in the fact that he will give you things that you think you need, but in reality you don't. But he only does that if you choose those behaviors mm -hmm. that are contrary to God. Mm -hmm. Internal means that do you doubt yourself or do you respect and love God so much that whatever, regardless of whatever you do, he still is going to love you. Part of the internal disposition of spiritual warfare is the fact that the devil wants you to think that God does not love you or that you possibly can't be loved that much by God, which is a fallacy. It's a farce. Right. And that's where the, the root of that comes into play. Because God kept showing Israel, I love you. They kept murmuring and grumbling. I love you. I just freed you from the slavery of sin. But I didn't ask for that. And that's essentially when they murmur and grumble against God. It's like, but you, do you not realize what you were doing? You were being pagans, you were worshiping false idols, you were not behaving morally right, you you embraced the debauchery of of the Egyptian culture. Right, so it's the justice of the act of, <clears throat> if you do this, the consequence is naturally sure. this. Absolutely. So it, it's hard for us to, to understand from an internal disposition what spiritual warfare does in the positive. It, it, if we focus on Christ, if we exercise our baptismal identity, it stems the tide from falling into the near occasion of sin. Now, we're going to fall. That's by nature. We're going to fall. But we lessen that opportunity. Right. That, that's the distinction. That's why the saints are the saints. They saw sin before it hit them. Now, they, they, they had their own falls. Everybody has their own fault. But they were able to stem that tide beforehand. And that's the beauty of living a saintly life, where we're called to be saints, is if I have the ability to stop at least 25%, if I want to put a percentage, of all the sins that are thrown at me on a daily basis, I'll take it in a heartbeat. If that allows me to see God a little bit more clearly, sign me up. Right. I'm game. And then as you grow in one virtue or aspect of your spiritual life, it's kind of like a rising tide for all boats too. So all Amen. of the other one's virtues rise as well with it. Amen. Yeah, I really like that. And we know that Satan's always there on the edge of... You know, our consciousness mm -hmm. just waiting for a weakness, waiting somewhere to, yeah. to, to, to make his way, his inroads in with us. Sure. So um, let's talk about some specific ways. You, you obviously mentioned mm -hmm. uh, a few of the, the, the most important ones for us as Catholics, but yeah. also as just Christian believers yeah. and um, those who pray to the Trinitarian God, as mm -hmm. you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So how can we resist the inclinations of the devil and our own selfishness? You obviously said... 
And as Jesus said, the only answer is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, without me, you can do nothing, as it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5. Um, and I just want to mention one, and then I'll throw it, throw it back to no, you, please. is uh, Father uh, Lorenzo Scapoli's great uh, work on called The Spiritual Combat, and a really good book for just really getting into yeah. what, what spiritual warfare or combat is and how we can specifically take actions uh, both internally and externally in our disposition. Mm-hmm. So I uh, just want to read what he says here, a snippet sure. from that. For if you will set yourself to trample down and exterminate all your unruly appetites, desires, and wishes, even in the smallest and most inconsiderable matters, you will render a greater and more acceptable service to God than if you should discipline yourself to blood, fast more rigorously than hermits or anchorites of old, or convert millions of souls, and yet voluntarily leave even one of these evils alive within you. For although the conversion of souls is no doubt more precious to the Lord than the mortification of a fancy, nevertheless, nothing should in your sight be of greater account than to will and to do that very thing which the Lord specially demands and requires of you. Mm. And he will infallibly be better pleased than you should watch and labor to mortify your passions than if you consciously and willfully... Uh, leave but one alive within you. Hmm. You should serve him in some other matter of great... Then if you should serve yourself in some other matter of greater importance in itself. So he's obviously talking about the internal disposition Mm -hmm. of ourselves. And then he goes on uh, to say the weapons to use to gain the palm of victory in the spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. Number one, distrust of self. Number two, trust in God. Number three, spiritual exercise. Number four, prayer. So throw out any, let's go any direction we want to with that. But um, if there's some specific resources or or ideas that you have about that as well. No, absolutely. I I think through that that entire list, there's a common theme uh, through Pontius and what we hear is that our relationship must be continually developed matured, exercised. And so what happens is with the, the whole premise of the moment we enter into the kingdom of God, our, our baptism is at work. It never leaves us. It's an indelible mark. So think of it logically. We're baptized and it's permanent. That means that sustenance, that particular sacrament, that, that first instance of being welcomed into the kingdom of God officially, because prior to that, we're still considered pagan. We're not pagan after we're baptized. Now we're, we're Christian. That begins the tools of the trade. That begins the marker. So uh, very simply, I always tell families, always um, celebrate your child's baptism. Why is that important? Well, it helps them identify that they are a child of God, that they were welcomed by God into this kingdom, and that you had a part of it. That, that's one thing in terms of a family understanding of dealing with spiritual warfare. Uh, another would be this, is the, the lost art of praying for one another or interceding mm. for one another is something that... Uh, in some circles, is viewed as taboo. Others like, oh, that's hocus pocus. Others like, oh, we don't do that anymore. That type of thing. When people used to say 30 years ago to me, oh, the church doesn't do Eucharistic adoration anymore. That was passe. That was medieval. It's never been medieval. It's always been. Uh, it's Christ, our Lord. So uh, for, for our audience, for parents especially, um, or caregivers or legal guardians or aunts, uncles, whoever may be in charge of children, 
uh, in particular, pray with them, pray over them. Uh, it's perfectly allowable to take holy water and make the sign of the cross on their forehead, uh, or holy oil, or bless salt, uh, perfectly normal. Those are sacramentals allowed to use. Uh, and those are great weapons, all right, for the spiritual battle as well to, to use uh, on a daily basis. Um, praying the St. Michael prayer is ideal. Uh, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, is something that is, should be apropos and should be normative in the family because you're dealing with forces, all right, that are evil. They want to distract you and distance you from God. That, that's a reality. Uh, it's no different than somebody who gossips about someone else. What's the premise of gossip? It's to create a false picture of somebody. That's the premise of gossiping. Right. And when you look at that, uh, you, you look at the definition of, of, of a hypocrite in the Greek. It's putting on a false face. So you want to avoid all those near occasions of sin, uh, and in some way because they attack my or your relationship with Jesus Christ, that I identify with our Lord, and, and He is my King. Sin is not my King. And when you start using that language, especially in a household, it, it carries on. There's a way to it where you help your children understand, well, Christ will guide you if you listen to him. The devil is the deceiver. He, he will do these things. He, he is behind the root of pride, the root of arrogance, the root of sloth, of envy, of avarice, of acedia, you name it. The seven capital sins don't just come out of thin air. They have a root, and it's the devil himself. But we choose to engage those sins, all right, he can't force us. They're just there like, like a buffet, waiting to be used if we fall into that near occasion of sin. Mm. Um, so all those things come into play. But I can't stress enough the value of praying over the person, praying over your children, um, going to confession. Uh, there's nothing wrong with saying the act of contrition on a daily basis as daily prayer or, or the penitential rite at Mass, where you strike your breast three times to confess before Almighty God, that I have sinned, all my fault, all, my, all through my grievous fault, that I am a sinner, but you are God. You can forgive me, and I recognize my faults, and, and I beg you, Lord Jesus, to forgive me, and that I may no longer sin again. I mean, all those elements waiting for us at Mass. Yeah, such gifts just waiting yeah. to be taken, such low-hanging fruit, so Absolutely. <laughs> and so those are just some of the practical ways that we, we can do things uh, in the home to, to stem the tide of spiritual warfare, to engage the spiritual battle in a healthy way. Uh, prayer is your key. Uh, always uh, keeping everything in terms of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Devotions to the saints is also wonderful. St. Joseph is the terror of demons. All right. Having a devotion to St. Joseph is ideal. Having a devotion to St. Therese of Lisieux, for example, Divine Mercy Chaplain, praying, uh, praying your, your rosary. Um, I mean, our family has played the family rosary now going on 19 years straight. That's great. And uh, I can't tell you that without our Blessed Mother allowing us to reflect on her son, which is what the rosary is, it's a reflection on the life of her son, Jesus Christ, uh, I mean, we'd be in, be in trouble. Because it's by the grace of that prayer that keeps us strong and focused on Him, even when we get upset. So those are the things that I would urge our audience to commit to in some way. And it doesn't have to be every day, all right? You start slow. You start, I mean, once a week, and then develop your progression from there. Um, or reading sacred scripture, reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church, any devotional that leads you to understand Christ and keep the devil at bay is all good. Yeah, it's, it's such a... Uh such a rich, amazing treasury of gifts that oh, gosh, yes. are available to us that we just don't avail of as nearly as much as we could. That's and true. 
that would help us. That's true. I uh, I want to kind of maybe step back for just a second yeah. here with, um, I had a thought as you are saying that, of the effects of our sins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you've, you've heard, well, I'm doing this. Yeah. This sin, I'm committing this sin, but it's not it's not affecting anybody else. Yeah, sure. This is my personal issue, and so again, going back to uh, Father Paul Pearson and uh, and Dante. Yeah. Dante stresses that the effects of sin mm-hmm. on your own soul, on you as a person, how it deforms you in your soul and your image as a. a you know, as a person created in the image of God, yeah. is a terrible thing to deform that. Just as terrible as if mm-hmm. you were to commit a sin that would affect somebody else as well. Sure. So I think we we've lost that as well in a lot of ways. The effects of sin on my own soul, on yeah. my own person, what it does to me, even if it's not quote affecting anybody else. Maybe we th- it would think that or it appears yeah. that way. It's a, you know a uh, a sin in secret or, or yeah. whatnot, but just to reflect on what it does to me internally, and then also, if you want to take it a step further, how it really does affect others as well in the long run because mm-hmm. of what it does to me as a person and affects how I can then be charitable towards others or Absolutely. Uh, perform. Like you, like you, like you mentioned the works of mercy. Yeah. So, obviously, running to the sacraments is is the big one. You know, living a sacramental life, like you mentioned, uh, the Holy Eucharist being the source and summit of our yeah. life, um, and, and availing ourselves more of penance. Those are, you know, spot on yeah. things that uh, I feel blessed to have in my life. And yes. Amen. And I know you do too. Um, so another one you mentioned was running to the Holy Family. Yeah. And this is the year of St. Joseph. So what a great time to have a devotion to him. And oh, um, a group of guys and I did yeah. the consecration of St. Joseph by yeah. Father Don Calloway. And yeah. It's just just great. You, you'll never, the terror demons, St. Joseph the terror demons, you'll never, I'll never think of him. You know, say that his litany in the same way without yeah. thinking of his different titles and how he can help me yes. as a father mm-hmm. and, and a man in our society nowadays with mm-hmm. so much coming at me internally and sure. externally. Yeah. And Padre Pio said that the uh, rosary is, he called it the weapon, just well, the weapon. It is a weapon. And I really yeah. like that yeah. title he gave it. And we know that Our Lady is also, it, one of her titles is Help yeah. of Exorcist, Terror of Demons That's as right. well. So, I think we have some solid, some solid actions we can take coming out of this. Yeah, and yeah, that's been a good, it's been, a lot of fruit it's been a fun talk. And yeah, absolutely. Love to get, uh, get you back and, yeah. and, and keep going on this and, and another topic. But sure, it's been an honor. I'd like to close in uh, prayer here with yeah. the litany of humility, uh, because we know that pride is the source of all of the evil that we can, Correct. you know, uh, 
the devil fell because of his pride, I would be like God. Adam and Eve fell. Sure. Adam and Eve fell because of their pride. I can be like God. So let's close with the litany of humility as the counter virtue sure. to pride. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart. Hear me. From the desire of being esteemed. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being loved. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being extolled. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being honored. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being praised. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being consulted. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being approved. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the desire of being humiliated. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear. Of being humiliated. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being despised. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being wronged. Deliver me, O Jesus. From the fear of being suspected. Deliver me, O Jesus. That others may be loved more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be praised and I go unnoticed. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be preferred to me in everything. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Let's say the St. Michael prayer as a closing as well. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Pray for us. Well, it's awesome. been a great talk, and we'll catch you next time. Sounds great. God bless you. You too.